Welcome to the Countless Corpses Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Nunley, and I'm here with co-host James Caldwell to talk about horror movies in depth in a form of infotainment. We'll be talking about uh, trivia about the films, uh, behind the scenes, and making of content, as well as throw in our own two cents about the film. Uh, we're just a couple of longtime horror fans discussing horror in its many forms. Today, in our very first episode, as James and I are huge Halloween fans, we decided that we needed to start the franchise that made us friends to begin with, and that is Halloween. There is, of course, no better place to start than with the 1978 John Carpenter classic. So without further ado, let's jump into it. James, is there anything you would like to add about the podcast, this episode, or Halloween before we get started? Well, man, I tell you what, this is just absolutely amazing. And, uh, and folks, for those of you who don't know, Mike and I actually got to know each other just about a year ago now, thanks to uh, tweeting each other about the movie Halloween Kills. And we became fast friends. So, so you know, we've been talking about this franchise and, you know, um, you know, the like other films and stuff. And we decided to slash our way into podcasting together. So, so, you know, here we are, you know, we're here to start with our favorite franchise and where the modern slasher films really begin. So let's go stabbing. Hell yeah. I'm pretty excited about doing our first episode together. I've always wanted to do a, just a straight up horror podcast. So this should be a lot of fun, my friend. Uh, thank you for inviting me on to do the show with you. You know, Oh man, I'm thrilled. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you can have a brilliant script and a great vision for a film, but ultimately it'll never be made without producers. Uh, so I feel like it's only right to open up our discussion on the original Halloween by talking about Mustafa Akkad. Uh, the wealthy film producer Mustafa Akkad admittedly had very little interest in Halloween, but it was inspired by, was, he was inspired by the enthusiasm of John Carpenter and Erwin Goblins. However, when the film went on to be a box office hit, he went on to facilitate every Halloween movie from then on until he died in 2005. But as a side note, Mustafa did not just die. He was murdered along with his daughter Rima in the terrorist bombing of an Amman Jordan hotel. It was at that point that Mustafa's son Malekakad took over, and he has been there for each Halloween film since, uh, including Rob Zombie's two, two Halloween films. Malek actually visited the set of the original film when he was seven, and seeing Malek again after his father's death apparently brought Jamie Lee Curtis to tears. Uh, but that rather sad story aside, uh, Deborah Hill, who was also a producer on the film, uh, worked on the film for no money, but instead got a percentage of the profits. Um, considering it went on to make over $70 million, uh, I'd say that was a good move. Yeah, you know, I think so too. And, and you know, just thinking about this backstory, it really makes me think, isn't this how people seem to get jobs? I mean, come on, you know, Akkad had no interest whatsoever in this film, but, but you had this really young and excited guy that had this great idea for a movie and essentially sold it with nothing but his enthusiasm. I mean, you know, you just have to love that. If, you know, all of this, um, Halloween lore that I know, I had no idea that Moose 
Mustafa was actually murdered alongside his daughter in that attack in Jordan. Like, like that just honestly sounds like an absolutely, you know, horrible way to go. And, you know, when I first kind of got into the franchise was back at like, um, um, H2O. And that was the first one that I really remember seeing, uh, Malik on the card for that one. So, so, you know, wow, man, like this just really just kind of blows me away. And I mean that with no puns at all, but, uh, you know, especially with considering the way he died and, you know, speaking of Deborah Hill, I mean, what a gamble that that had to be. Because basically, this Halloween film in 1978 basically had a B-movie budget. And this movie just hit so hard and was so successful. Like, like you know, now this seems to be a pretty common thing. I mean, you know, most folks know that Robert Downey sh- Junior didn't get paid at all for his work on Avengers Endgame, right? But by that point, he knew that he was going to make a ton of cash just with getting, you know, a portion of the profits from that film. But, I mean, this is a one-shot film that came out in 1978, completely new idea. So that's just a huge gamble that paid off big time. Oh, it really is. And, and it shows both guts and I think a belief in the project. I don't imagine anyone expected it to gross 70 million, though, especially as you said, James, that with it being a B movie. I have to say, I have a lot of respect for Deborah Hill for doing that. Um, you know, you mentioned that you came onto the franchise with Halloween H2O, and actually, that was the first Halloween movie I remember watching as well. However, I only saw about half of it back then. Um, I really came on to the franchise with Rob Zombie's Halloween from 2007. But as far as Mustafa Akkad goes, um, it, it really is a shame that's how it went down. But, but someone had to fill Mustafa's shoes. And Malik was, and Malik was uh, the perfect person to do that. Um, Malik was uh, kind of eased into the franchise, actually, with his dad, Mustafa. Uh, first, he was an associate producer for The Curse of Michael Myers. And as you mentioned on Halloween H2O, uh, but then Malik uh, moved on, moved up to co-producer for Halloween Resurrection, um, which <laughs> I, I, we're going to comment on later, I suppose. But, uh, <laughs> but, yeah. since, Zombie, but since Zombie's reboot, uh, Malik has been the producer, and I think he's doing a great job. Uh, bringing him on was a good move and a natural fit. Um, speaking of good moves, though, um, John Carpenter composed the music for Halloween. In some sources, say three days, others say four. But either way, that's a really short amount of time. Uh, But what is not disputed is that John Carpenter, who had only done one film before that, Assault on Precinct 13, demanded $10,000 to write, produce, and direct the score. That was a lot for a guy who only had one film under his belt. But consider this. He showed a copy of Halloween to an executive producer before it was finished, and she said that it wasn't scary at all. But then she watched it in the theater with John's score, and she was terrified and commented how much his score added to the film. So when it comes down to it, that was 10 grand well spent. But that wasn't enough for John Carpenter. (laughs) He also wanted his name above the the, the title, John Carpenter's Halloween. Uh, producer Erwin Yablins agreed as long as the whole budget did not exceed 300000 Well, 
That's not how it turned out, despite the agreement. An additional 25000 was added to the budget uh, to cover Donald Pleasant's extravagant sa- salary. Uh, luckily, it only took 20 days to shoot or it would have cost more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you bring a guy like uh, Pleasant in at that point in time, I mean, he definitely brought in the big bucks back then. But, you know, the really neat thing about this, which which will definitely tie in some things we're going to be talking about. Uh, and it really kind of ties into the credits part of this film is the composer on the film was the Bowling Green Philharmonic Orchestra, but there's no such thing. (laughs) We'll kind of talk about that a little more here in just a bit, but, but the really neat thing about this, um, um, about that kind of iconic theme was that it was actually inspired by bongo music. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, that's just one of the great things about this, about, you know, this particular film and, you know, other films just in general, you know, a lot of these kind of, you know, emotional movies, it's really like, you know, Hitchy kind of in the fields with the music and the score. I mean, you know, I'm not the biggest music guy uh, that's ever lived. Like, you know, I don't really listen to it on, you know, a daily basis. But it's just something about having an amazing uh, score in a movie and just how it makes it. Because, because that's kind of the reason, like, one of the reasons I think that the 1978 Halloween film was just so successful and it's just got a special place for me. You know, according to, uh, to an interview that Carpenter did, the kind of rhythm for the theme, he says, was inspired by an exercise my father taught me on the bongos in 1961, beating out 5-4 Tom. And he commented in an interview uh, before saying that, you know, it took him about three days to compose the entire score for the film. So he basically transposed this technique with the bongos and put it to the piano and thus, you know, this theme tune was born attributing his final influences to the soundtrack to Friedkin's film as well as uh, um, Dario um, Argento's Suspiria I hope I pronounced that right which Carpenter also admitted to, to like being the influence for the film's like color scheme because the color scheme, which we'll talk about here in just a bit too, really kind of played a part in that film. So so just something like this kind of basic tune along with those other tidbits that that only cost $10,000 in 1978 money equates to about $45,425 today. Now, now if you compare that to what um, John Williams was paid to compose Star Wars just the year before in 1977, he was paid 50 grand to do that. 
which equals out to about 250000 today. Or, you know, maybe about to cost about three minutes of a Disney Plus uh, Star Wars episode. <laughs> you know, I mean, but, but I mean, you know, John Williams is just such, you know, responsible for a lot of those scores that, that, you know, I had kind of, you know, during my formative years. But I've got to say, I think that the... Halloween theme so theme song is actually my favorite one out of all of them. I can understand why. Um, you know, hearing how much Williams was paid, it actually makes more sense that Carpenter was asking as much as he did. I mean, I I initially thought ten thousand dollars was a lot, especially when they were pinching uh, pinching pennies on the budget anyway. But I mean, truth be told, neither Star Wars uh, nor Halloween would have been anywhere near as good without the score. Uh, I mean, as a side note, <laughs> the Bowling Green Philharmonic was just Carpenter. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, it was so just him. Your, what, what was that? It was just him on like a little keyboard. I think it was right, at right. The top. So. So let's shift gears here a little and talk about some making of stuff from the film. Uh, I have an interesting bit of trivia info and I'd like to share. And, and that is uh, that the original script called the babysitter murders had the killings taking place over several nights, but for budgetary reasons, it was cut down to a single night because that would mean less locations and costume changes. Halloween uh, was actually selected uh, to be the one night because it's the scariest night of the year. Uh, coincidentally, Halloween 1978 was voted the fifth scariest film of all time by Entertainment Weekly. And I've heard a lot of people talk about how it terrified them as well. Uh, but check this story out. Uh, Terry Gross interviewed Robert, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel for a fundraiser in 1996 and asked them what the scariest movie they had seen was. I would like to note before you hear Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel's response, that I have personally heard them bash and trash most of the slasher genre, except the original Halloween. Roger said that Halloween was extremely scary, and then went on to tell a story about Gene having watched it in the theater, and it took and took a cab home, even though he only lived two blocks away, because he was so scared. And then Gene added that when he got home, he actually pulled back his shower curtain to make sure no one was there. <laughs> How about you, James? Do you have a story of being super terrified of a movie like Old Siskel there? Oh, man. I tell you, that's just such a neat thing. Uh, but just really first, before I kind of tackle that, uh, Mike, you know, I just want to point out in the in the 2018 um, Halloween film, uh, you see Deputy Hawkins actually directly referenced the original script of babysitter murders when he's talking to Sheriff Barker, I guess in the, um, I guess in the like ER room when they're waiting on one Dr. Sartain to wake up after being shot by the kid earlier in that movie. So this is a nice that. little, that was a really nice touch. I thought, yeah, yeah, just one of those little, like, nice little, like, you know, like, Easter egg kind of throwbacks. Okay, right, right. so, okay, so now to kind of answer your question, a movie that absolutely terrified me. Uh, not, okay, so not as an adult, you know, 
you know, as a kid, you know, I watched uh, Nightmare on Elm Street with my uncle when I was probably way too young. Uh, but, you know, I didn't really find that incredibly scary. But, you know, the one film that actually really kind of freaked me out was actually a comedy. Um, it's like, you know, I was really small and I watched the movie Throw Mama from the Train. Okay, I was absolutely terrified of Anne Ramsey in that film, as like as a kid. That's the one movie in my life I've never been brave enough to revisit. I have to say that is not a thing I expected to hear about on the scary list. Uh, but when someone creeps you out, they just creep you out. And Anne Ramsey was one of one that was either funny or creepy for sure. I mean. Either way, her voice in particular could could really be creepy if it, if if you if you just heard it in the right light. Um, it's funny that you should mention though uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984, as that movie scared the hell out of me as a child as well. Um, I actually had recurring nightmares about Freddy chasing me up a seem, seemingly endless spiral staircase. Uh, but like, uh, you know how Nancy got her feet. Uh, stuck in the stairs when she was going up, it got stuck in that I don't know that melted marshmallow stuff or whatever. My feet oh yeah stuck in the stairs or something. <laughs> um, but I'm sure we'll end up covering that franchise, so I won't discuss the funny fifth grade journaling story here. <laughs> but that one is a doozy. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, man, you know, uh, I had a few kind of dreams, nightmares, things like that, you know as a kid, but you know, that didn't really last too long. And, you know, I've kind of, uh, come back to, uh, nightmare on, um, Elm street, you know, and all of those kind of great films, you know, uh, of that time. But you know, what's really kind of odd though, I can watch any other movie that, that Anne Ramsey's been in, and I don't have any problems at all. It's just that one. Oh, so, you know, I think it's just kind of a funny thing, you know. So, you know, I'm kind of thinking that maybe soon I might need to kind of revisit that film now that I'm kind of uh, pushing 40. You know, I think I'm kind of old enough to be able to kind of handle that movie now. Um, you know what? Um, I'm actually thinking about, I'm going to go back and check it out just to see what creepiness I might have missed. <laughs> you know, maybe sometime, you know, down the road, we need to do like a special episode of this show just to kind of cover that movie. <laughs> you know, we could look into that. <laughs> but seriously, um, the 1960 Alfred Hitchcock film Psycho is credited by many as the start of the slasher genre. Uh, the influence of Psycho and Alfred Hitchcock in general is all over have, uh, Halloween. Obviously, it is in Carpenter's minimalist approach, uh, camera angles and storytelling, but lots of nods get dropped in the film as well. Uh, Dr. Sam Loomis uh, is Michael Myers' psychiatrist. Sam Loomis is also the name of Marion Crane's secret lover in Psycho. Coincidentally, Marion Crane was played by Jamie Lee Curtis's mother, Janet Lee, and uh, Anne is played by actress Nancy Kias, uh, but she is credited as Nancy Loomis in the credits. 
In addition to Psycho uh, being a major influence, the name Marion takes the place uh, in the movie with the name of the nurse that uh, was uh, with Loomis, uh, played by Nancy Stevens. Like Marion Crane and Sam Loomis, Marion Chambers is closely connected to Dr. Samuel Loomis. You know what's really kind of odd? Like, I knew some of this, but I never really put two and two uh, together to get four with these names. So, you know, I mean, here really soon, I'm going to have to go back and watch uh, Psycho, like, as soon as I can. You know, speaking of that film, uh, years ago, I lived in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, and they had this um, uh, small kind of, uh, uh, you know, old, like, you know, older, uh, like, movie theater there called the Kentucky Theater. And, you know, every summer they'd have like a different kind of uh, uh, film festival type thing. And they'd show like, you know, a movie a week for like, you know, eight or nine weeks. And you just kind of would pay like, I don't know, I think it was even like 20 bucks. And you could go see, you know, every, like, you know, every film like that year. And one year they had all of the Alfred Hitchcock films that year. And honestly, that was the first time that I ever got to experience the movie Psycho. Uh, and, and honestly, that was also the first experience for what might actually be the scariest movie I've ever seen as an adult. And that's the birds. Like still to this day, anytime I see a large flock of birds, it kind of freaks me out, but you know, I digress, Mike. Um, uh, I do think you have a few more tidbits though, that you can offer us up on the, um, um, like kind of the other kind of influential things on John Carpenter's Halloween. Uh, sure do James. Um, Hitchcock was not the only influence being worn on the movie's sleeve. As the Howard Hacks production, The Theme from Another World, from 1951, can be seen playing on the television. Now, Howard Hacks made a lot of great films, from what I understand, so it could be him, uh, director Christian Nivey, or both. Either way, Halloween director uh, John Carpenter would release a remake of this film in 1982, simply called The Thing, which also went on to be a seminal classic like Halloween did. Coincidentally, Carpenter was approached by the studio when Texas Chainsaw Massacre director Toby Hooper's concept for the film was rejected. But Hooper's 1974 horror slasher would go on to become a beloved franchise with an iconic villain as well in Leatherface, albeit not on the scale of Halloween. You know what? Like, I absolutely love just how, you know, kind of like intertwined all these movies really are. You know, Psycho itself is kind of loosely based on um, on on a man by the name of Ed Gein, who is like, and you know, he's kind of the basis for all these kind of slasher films, right? Pop culture kind of classifies him as a serial killer, but he's actually only credited with two kills and to be a serial killer you actually need three so you know it's kind of like the double o program in the uh 
James Bond films. But, you know, in this case, I guess it's like a triple O, I guess. So, you know, the Psycho movie was the first film to kind of be kind of loosely based on um, Ed Gein. And then you had like Halloween film kind of next. And then you had Leatherface. And I think that kind of story of his really kind of reached its peak with Buffalo Bill and Silence of the Lambs. You know, uh, to, to your to your point, though, um, The Shape was definitely the next evolution in the slasher genre, started by Psycho. Although some might say Peeping Tom was technically the first slasher, and they would be correct, just not in America. Um, Ooh, interesting. I think the evolution that happened in Halloween with the slasher is the supernatural element. You know, Ed Gein, Norman Bates, and Buffalo Bill were some sick, twisted people for sure. Uh, but they were just men, and they could be killed. That's where Michael Myers, or rather the shape, really took it to the next level. He gets up after being stabbed in the throat with a knitting needle and being stabbed in, uh, with a knife and taking a hanger to the eye. Hell, he gets up after being shot by Loomis six times. That that whole unstoppable killer thing uh, really changed the game. Call the police. Tell them I shot him. Tell them I shot him six times. You know, just... Just, you know, what a great line by Dr. Loomis, although it was in technically the first part of uh, Halloween 2. I just want to say that was a decent impression as well. Well, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's great. Like, I've honestly been trying to practice that for days just to make sure <laughs> I at least got it you know just <laughs> enough because it because it was just so good uh and just you know my favorite uh like my second favorite line like in the entire series I think and we'll get to what my first one is here soon enough but you know you know I know that uh, uh John Carpenter basically basically kind of saw this as like a one-shot film and then maybe do like, you know, an anthology series with it, you know, that um, Halloween three, which is completely different, but, you know, just to create something, you know, so incredibly long lasting as Michael Myers and the shape and that kind of story between Myers and Laurie Strode, like just to think of what came after that, you know, it's just an amazing thing to kind of think about. Oh, that was a great line by Loomis. And if I'm honest, uh, oftentimes when I watch the 78 film, I actually throw on Halloween two right afterwards because they're one single night. So I say that line counts, even if it's technically in a different film. Uh, But speaking of nods and references in the original film, there are numerous references to John Carpenter's hometown of Bowling Green, Kentucky. Smith's Grove is a small town of about 600 people located 15 miles north of Bowling Green on I-65. There are a lot of uh, street names used in Halloween taken directly from the streets in the greater Bowling Green area. And he wasn't the only one giving a shout out to his hometown. The film takes place in the fictional town of Haddonfield, Illinois. Well, Deborah Hill's hometown was Haddonfield, New Jersey. You know, I live about an hour away from Lampkin Lane in Bowling Green. 
Um, you know, I've got friends down there and some family that kind of live over in Smith's Grove. You know, it's just, you know, a nice little quiet town, like where nothing much ever happens. And, uh, and you know, about 45 minutes away is Russellville. That's kind of mentioned in Halloween 2. Uh, and, you know, and, you know, we still got that kind of callback to that kind of Bowling Green Philharmonic, you know, uh, that's named after his hometown and home to the Western Kentucky University. And, I mean, they don't even have, like, an orchestra or anything like that. Or, you know, at least not at that time. I could be wrong now. So, you know, just all of these kind of callbacks to his hometown, I guess it's really more of like a rock kind of what you know and just kind of put things together kind of like to sound good, I guess. Right, right. You know, <laughs> if I were you, I'd have a pick of myself right under that Lampkin Lane sign, maybe with a little middle finger or something. Tell me, <laughs> tell me you have a pick like that. <laughs> You know, not right now, and I feel really bad about that. But since it's so close, this is what I'm going to have to do. I like I'm going to have to get a Michael Myers mask, and I'm going to have to drive down there and stand like right under that side. And you know what? I'll also try to get some uh, pictures and stuff of like you know the town and the you know other signs that's kind of call back. To the films, and I'll post those out on Twitter as soon as I can. Oh, that would be awesome! I, I look forward to the photo shoot. Uh, but you know, it was it was not just the names of the streets and towns that influenced the script. The story itself is based on an experience John Carpenter had in college while touring a psychiatric hospital. Uh, Carpenter met a child that stared at him with a look of evil and terrified him. Uh, Donald Pleasance tells a story of meeting Michael as a child, and I can't help but think that Donald is conveying Carpenter's experiences when he says that he was told there was nothing left, no reason, no conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life and death, of good or evil, of right and wrong. He met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Uh, John Carpenter has said that he based Michael Myers also off of Yul Brenner's robotic assassin character from 1973's Westworld. So that gives you an idea about kind of his movements and stuff. You know, I've heard like other people kind of refer to those kind of robotic movements that Myers does. And that is actually the part that seems to like really freak them out. Um, and, you know, I've also heard that some people find it scary that uh, about that kind of, uh, like the kind of robot in the shape of a man. So he's like really not a man at all. So, so, so it's almost like they made Michael Myers kind of like, like a sexless being with like supernatural powers. And that's almost what they find to be really scary about him. So what do you think about that, Mike? Um, I think that's definitely true, and honestly, that's one complaint, uh, and, and I don't have very many, uh, that I have about the newest trilogy, um, was that um, the original Michael Myers mask uh, was emotionless, it was expressionless, it was, it was blank, 
Uh, but if you if you look at the new masks, it actually has a bit of a sadness to it. And and I, I, yeah. I, that that was my really one complaint with those. But I think it, that that is definitely true. I would say that Michael Myers, or rather the shape, is a mockery of a man. The blank, pale, emotionless face mixed with terrible violence. Also, the form of a man without the conscience of one. The whole blank slate aspect add, adds to the horror he commits 100%. Uh, not just to, not just with the creepy factor, but also to the terror factor as well. Uh, but let me break that down a little further by talking about uh, the chosen name for Michael Myers uh, in the film. We all know him as Michael Myers now, but he was originally just listed as the shape in the credits of the uh, of Halloween 1978 film. And again in the 2018 film and Halloween Kills movies, even though they showed him as a six-year-old boy under the name Michael Myers. I take this to mean that he ceased to be Michael Myers the night that he killed Judith. And, and simply just became the shape after that. Now, the shape is an interesting choice for him. Uh, that, that was a term used during the Salem witch trials to describe the specters and spirits of the accused uh, doing mischief or harming another person. In other words, no longer human, merely the shape of one, or at least that's how I take it. Um, though Michael is also referred to as the boogeyman in both the original Halloween and in uh, Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers from 1988. As I understand it, Carpenter's first film, Assault on Precinct 13, uh, was entered into a British contest and won first prize and ultimately did better overseas uh, than it did here in the United States. The distributor of the film over there was none other than Michael Myers. And Carpenter actually named his character as a sort of uh, a thank you for the overseas success. Oh, wow. Now, you know, that part I didn't know. Um and that really just kind of blows my mind. It's like, you know, thank you for helping this movie uh, become a success. So so now this other film, it's like, I'm going to make you a deranged serial killer, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, thank you very much. <laughs> okay. So, you know, uh, I've heard that, you know, uh, John... Carpenter did want that kind of character to be uh, called the shape. And, and that really was, you know, that key factor about him being no longer human. And, and, you know, in the novelization for the 2018 uh, film and kill specifically, uh, they do explore that a little more and refer to Michael Myers as the shape kind of like kind of throughout the entire book. And honestly, those books give a slightly enhanced view of the shape that we'll definitely kind of talk about more when we get to um, our episode about uh, the 2018 film and kills. And, you know, another thing about that name, the boogeyman is just incredible too. what you don't believe in the boogeyman. Well, you should, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and but 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 you know the thing is, I had never looked into the nature of the term boogeyman until now, and I I mean I honestly had no idea where it came from. But I'm like, okay, so for this episode, let me really kind of look into that and kind of figure out why John Carpenter decided to use that name. So. So the boogeyman is kind of this type of mythic creature that's always been used by adults to frighten their kids into good behavior. Uh, 
So, so the boogeyman doesn't have any kind of specific appearance, and the conceptions vary drastically by uh, household and by culture. Um, and they're, but they're mostly, most commonly depicted as being masculine or androgynous monsters that punish children for misbehavior. So, so the boogeyman were you know, other similar monsters can be found in many cultures around the world. So the boogeyman may target a specific act or like a general kind of misbehavior, depending on like what purpose it actually needs to be served, often based on a warning from the child's authority figure. So this term is sometimes used in like a non-specific like personification uh for like terror and in some cases the devil so you know kind of circling back to that early co comment about how people found michael to be scary because he's he's kind of androgynous and has that uh robotic movement like like that is certainly how the boogeyman is de depicted in most cultures around the world for sure huh. that, that Wow, <laughs> that's actually some nice insight on the boogeyman aspect. Uh, that certainly fits. Also, that's cool about the connection to just being being the form of a man uh, as Carpenter's idea. In fact, I'm going to canonize that by blending both ideas of the shape uh, because I think they actually fit really nicely together. Yes, uh, yes. He is the form of a man who represents death and pure evil, and he certainly helped create some cautionary tales for kids and babysitters. <laughs> <laughs> and... You know what? I and, and and you know, for this podcast, I was actually able to track down the not the novelization for the nineteen seventy eight Halloween film on Internet Archive. Okay, this wow. book is in physical form is really rare and runs on the cheap end for about three hundred dollars. Like on the cheap end. I've seen some for like six, seven, eight hundred bucks just for, yeah. you know, the paperback. So, so, you know, I'm very thankful to the um, archivist who put this up because I found some really interesting uh, tidbits about the boogeyman in the novel as well. Because early in the book, Michael is trying on his clown costume for his grandmother. And she's really disturbed about the store-bought clown costume and how Halloween isn't what it used to be. So according to the grandmother, we took Halloween seriously. While when we set out scarecrows and jack-o'-lanterns, it's because we were generally trying to scare off the boogeyman. Boogeyman, now he played real plain pranks and did some damage he didn't just go around like they do today slapping people's clothes and socks filled with chalk dust and soaping their windows michael then asked well what did the boogeyman do and the grandmother said if you were lucky he would just behead uh your ch 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 chickens if you weren't lucky maybe behead a couple cows and the grandmother actually told a gra graphic story of her early years in which she was a kid and her house was filled with smoke because 
their hog had been killed with with its um, throat cut, and the carcass was sitting on top of the chimney's vent. Uh, So, and, and, you know, it's really hard for, you know, a 300 plus pound hog to kind of get up there. And, you know, there were no tracks and no signs of anyone kind of put it, uh, putting that up and no one could really figure out how the dead hog got up there. So uh, they contributed that to the boogeyman. Huh, that that is very interesting, and it certainly adds to the concept of the shape as the boogeyman by adding in elements of the actual Celtic day of Samhain. Um, I I really like that a lot. Uh, good stuff there, my friend. Um, you know, with how key the shapes' movements are uh, to inciting fear in the viewers, I was actually surprised to find out that five different people dressed up as Nick Castle's the shape uh, during the filming. Uh, Tony Moran, who had uh, sprung up, who had it actually just sprung up on him one day when he showed up to work. Um, he wore the mask during the unmasking by Laurie Strode. Uh, stuntman uh, James Winburn, uh, production de- designer Tommy Lee Wallace, as he knew uh, how much force to apply when destroying the props, uh, so that it could be done in, in a single take. So that was uh, that was during the film when he was breaking into the closet trying to get at Laurie, and uh, co-writer and co-producer Deborah Hill. In uh, on the wide shot, uh, the wide panel shot where Tommy first sees the shape. You know what's odd? I didn't really ever know that that many people, you know, wore the mask in the film. And but you know, it really tracks because because I mean, the shape does you know different things through at the film and and you know for. Uh, Poran to be the one like in the unmasking part, like I mean, definitely talk about like other duties as a son that you see for job for jobs these days. It's like, hey, you, you came into work today. We're going to have you be the shape and wear this mask, and we're going to unmask you on film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a very vague job description, uh, but. As he got to play the shape at a key moment in the film, that's probably a job he didn't mind getting, at least in retrospect. Um, As you alluded to earlier, James, before working on Halloween 78, the film's cinematographer, Dean Coondy, and John Carpenter saw the film uh, Chinatown from 1974, and they were just blown away by it. In fact, it influenced the color palette for Halloween, with the burnt orange for the daytime shots and the blue backing for the nighttime shots. The dark lighting, which served the film so well, was actually done because they didn't have enough money to pay for lights. <laughs> Man, budgetary stuff uh, that was a hassle to deal with uh, actually ended up being very good things that made the film such a classic. Oh, man, those budgetary restraints had to be a nightmare for sure on this film. Because, because I mean, they also ended up uh, like, like, you know, they had to film this during the summer, and you can basically tell from the trees and the flowers that, you know, if it was actually October, there wouldn't be any, like, green leaves and things of that shot. And and they really couldn't do it back then in terms of, like, 
post-production on that tight of a budget anyway. But, you know, I really think that orange palette really helped giving it that kind of fall feeling like during those daytime shots. So even though it's summer, it does kind of have that kind of fall feeling, I think, because it's orange. And, and you know, a little another little favorite like tidbit of mine has to do with those kind those kind of leaves that you actually do see on the ground like the few that you see in those shots um they actually had people uh like like put these dead leaves down and like in between shots they would actually have to go up and pick up all these leaves uh because they had no way to get more like they didn't have any way to get more or the cash to get more and one day, a young man by the name of Robert England, who became known as Freddy Krueger, that was actually his job on set for one day. Acor- according to uh, to an interview he gave a few years back, I actually had a roommate back when they did the um, the original Halloween, the John Carpenter one. And he conned me into going to Pasadena one day with garbage bags full of dead leaves. We were working on the set of the original Halloween movie, throwing dead leaves around so it looked like autumn. So it looked like fall back in the Midwest. Man, that is a crappy job. Put all these leaves on the ground, then bag them up and put them on the ground over there. <laughs> but you're 100% right about the orange color palette making a huge difference in getting that fall feel. They, they really did a decent job considering what they had to work with. You know what? You know, I really think so, too. You know, even with those budgetary constraints, they actually made like lemonade out of lemons, basically, I think. Right. So... But okay, so, so let's kind of like like keep in with this idea of like the budgetary stuff, and actually kind of pivot just a little bit to what I mean. I think we can all agree it's the most iconic part of the franchise, and that's the mask of Michael Myers. What can you tell us about that, Mike? Um, it can be said that the Halloween mask that the shape wears is essential to how scary the shape is. The blank, emotionless face, stalking and killing, all carried in large part by the mask. Um, So it's only right that we talk about the mask a bit. According to Don Post Jr., president of Don Post Studios, the famous California mask company, the filmmakers originally approached his firm about making the original mask for use in the film, but they could not afford the high cost of making a mask from scratch and offered him to post points uh, in the film as payment, but he turned it down as he had received such he's received such offers all the time. I wonder if he regrets that now, though. Um, they did consider uh, a Don Post Studios clown mask for the shape originally as a nod to young Michael Myers dressing up as a clown uh, in the clown costume when he killed his sister Judith. Uh, the clown mask was creepy and unsettling, uh, and, but the crew ultimately decided that the emotionless look of the Don Post Captain Kirk mask. Um, its, its simplicity made it all the more terrifying. A pull here and a yank there, throw in some fish belly white spray paint, and you have one of the most iconic masks in film history. It should be noted that Jamie Lee Curtis has said in interviews that William Shatner, whose face was the model for Captain Kirk mask used in the film, 
did not appreciate having his likeness used uh, as the face of a demonic, sadistic serial killer. Those are his words. Um, what's more, SNL comedian and actor Michael Myers of Wayne's World and Austin Powers fame hates having a serial killer out there with the same name he does. <laughs> it's like, you know, I know Star Trek is one of like the most like iconic series that we have and William Shatner will be forever iconic because of that. However, you know, he does have this other aspect of pop culture in which he gets to be immortalized as well and I you know, I think that's kind of I think that's kind of cool. And you know, wouldn't it be neat if they could get Shatner himself just do a small cameo in the film. You know, I, you know, you know, I get the connotations with the serial killer and all that, but Shatner, you know, being all sorts of iconic like that just really just just fascinates me. And you know, the Mike Myers of Wayne World, Wayne's World, and Austin Powers fame. Uh, you know, that one maybe I can understand a bit more because, you know, having the same name as anyone or a character that's famous or infamous can be frustrating at times. I'm sure, you know, people get you confused, make like corny jokes, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, maybe I can get that one a little more. You know, um, <laughs> I have actually used that panel from Watchmen. Uh, the Warshack is scre uh, screaming to them uh, to give him back his face in reference to William Shatner's thoughts on his likeness being used as a shape mask. <laughs> That's awesome. It, it, it really fits. <laughs> um, I am under the impression, however, that Shatner is not a horror guy, though. Um, so I don't, I don't see him making a cameo, uh, but that would be cool. As for the comedian Mike Myers, as you said, millions of people making the same joke at your expense, like they're the first ones to ever say it, it would get old very quickly. Every job interview and initial meeting with someone, you just know it's going to come up. That that would be frustrating and might even make me a little prickly if I were in his shoes. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, I'm sure it would. Uh, so, so, you know, for, you know, that specific Mike Myers, okay. I get that. And, you know, Shatner not really being a horror guy, you know, I guess that kind of tracks. You know, that's not for everyone. And, you know, I, I know he's more of like a science fiction kind of guy. You know, we all know that Star Wars is better, but, you know, Star Trek itself is just really cool, too. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Kidding. That's a discussion <laughs> for another day. But, but, you know, if you can't get, like, the Captain Kirk himself to make an appearance, I wonder if the comedian Mike Myers would be interested at all. Uh, you know, at least have some kind of fun. I mean, I guess this is why I'm not involved in ca casting movies and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think your best bet might be, like, a spoof movie. Uh, but they really... But <laughs> they really they seem like they're, they're just against it. Um I did see a movie, however, where a guy was asked to get Michael Myers masks uh, for a robbery. They were all going to wear them, you know, to hide their identity. And the guy came back with an Austin Powers mask, which was funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. 
<laughs> but, I, but I think that might be as close as you get for now. Um, for now, uh, let's let's move on to the opening POV sequence uh, where Michael kills Judith Myers. Um, it took two days to film, uh, but ultimately only had three scenes, and there were only that many because the Panavision cameras, uh, which cost half the budget, by the way, uh, wow. they were using could only hold about five minutes of film. Can you imagine trying to shoot a movie with five minutes of film in each take? I mean, oh wow, that's that just sounds insane. Right? It it should be noted that they did not shoot the film with the eye hole, like we were looking through the mask. Uh, they only shot it as a POV. Uh, the eye holes uh, used there and at the end of the film were added post-projection by MGM's optical department. You know, I didn't know that, but, but, but you know, that just sounds really neat. Like, you know, it takes, it's like you're, you film a movie that takes 20 days to do and three of those days is for like the opening what two minutes of the movie if that <laughs> i mean it just really blows my mind and and you know i've kind of referenced you know the novel previously they do have a slightly well well they have a different opening se uh sequence like they do have like the uh, Judith Myers death scene in it, but that's not the very beginning. The very beginning actually goes back thousands of years to the Celts. Um, in the pro in the prologue, it starts out with the horror that started on the eve of. Okay, is it pronounced Sam Hain? Like well, in English, does? in English they say Sam Hain, but the actual word in Irish is pronounced Sawin. Sawin. Yes. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to do my best to pronounce it the way the Irish do. Okay. So, so, so in the prologue, it starts with the horror that started on the eve of Sawin in a foggy veil in Northern Ireland at the dawn of the Celtic race. And once it started, uh, it trod the earth forevermore, wreaking its savagery suddenly, swiftly, and with incredible ferocity. Then it just, then it's less sated, it shrank back into the mist of time for a year, a decade, a generation perhaps. But it slept only and did not die, for it could not be killed. And on the eve before Samhain, it would stir, and if the lust was powerful enough, it would rise to fulfill the curse that invoked so many Samhains before. Then the people would bolt their doors. It tells of the tragedy of... Enda, a disfigured young man that wants to marry Deidre, the beautiful daughter of the king of the tribe. Um, Enda wanted to marry Deidre and talk to her, but when he finally had the chance, Deidre ran away crying that the monster meant to rape her. At the festival of Samhain, Deidre is betrothed to a young man, and Enda jumps out with a long knife and kills them both. Enda then is killed, and his head and heart is taken to the Hill of the Fiends, where cowards and other outcasts were left to rot. The king asked the shaman to perform a curse that thy soul shall roam the earth till the end of time, reliving the foul deed and thy foul punishment. And may the god Muk Allah visit every affliction upon thy spirit evermore. Then the sky darkened and lightning flashed, 
The days suddenly grew black and cold, and out of nowhere, a gust of snow lashed out on the tribal party. Wow. That, that is very interesting. In fact, it seems to both inform the driving force behind the 78 Michaels, Michael Myers, as well as give some insight into Rob Zombie's second Halloween film. Uh, but let me explain what I mean. A man named William Hackett wrote in 1853 about the procession of the messengers of Macaulay uh, that would circle the district between Bali Cotton and uh, Trebelgan uh, along the coast of uh, uh, along the coast, blasting on the cow horns and carrying gifts of milk, uh, butter, eggs, corn, potatoes, uh, wool, etc. Essentially, the the gifts of a farmer. Um, but here's the part that jumped out of me about Zombies Halloween 2. At the head of the procession was a figure enveloped in a white robe or a sheet and having the head of a mare. This personage was called the Lerbon, the white mare. He basically served as the master of ceremonies. You'll note that a white horse plays a very large part in Zombies Halloween 2. In fact, we'll just, in fact, We'll find as we discuss the book further uh, throughout the episode uh, that the book, as well as uh, Samhain festivals, seem to, seems to have greatly inspired Zombies Halloween movies. It should be noted that Hackett believed that the word Macala uh, to be a deity, but Irish folklorist Kevin Dan Danher uh, speculates that it, it could have its roots, roots in the Irish word for echo, which is Macala. Uh, that that I think speaks to the use of the term the shape uh, as he is a mere echo of a man. Whoa. So that seems to be really cool to me. And that this idea of Makala really inspired kind of Rob Zombie to do those films. And then, you know, you got the 78 film and, you know, the book as well. And, and you know, it makes me wonder if Rob Zombie actually read the novelization for the 78 film, because I think that would be, you know, a really um, interesting take on it and just be fascinating to see if he actually did. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that idea of the Samhain Festival procession being led by a figure enveloped in a white robe or a sheet. Because on the cover of the original 78 novels, novelization is a figure in a white sheep or robe with the head of a pumpkin or a jack-o'-lantern. So it's, you know, both a callback to Samhain. And I also think maybe it gives a little bit of foreshadowing as well to the part in the movie and the book in which Linda is murdered by the shape and he's got the sheet and uh, 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 the glasses on. Actually, you know, uh, it hadn't occurred to me until just now that I I, I wonder if, because, um, you know, the whole thing with Michael Myers putting on the sheet uh, before he killed Linda, I always thought that was a little weird. But maybe that's a direct reference to that, to the McAuliffe uh, procession. And... And, you know, I'm thinking that, too, because, I mean, now that we've kind of, like, looked into this and everything, it's like, you know, like, I mean, I've seen this film a hundred times at least. <laughs> I mean, I've watched this for years, and it's like, okay, he's doing this kind of weird thing, you know, he's got the sheet and stuff, but it's like, it seems like it's got a much deeper 
meaning than that, uh, other than him just kind of being, you know, playful or maybe like, 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 you know, that kind of ghostly kind of figure thing, which like I kind of thought at first, but then once you kind of really kind of take it back to um, like that particular idea, it just kind of adds that kind of extra layer uh, to the cake there. It, it really does. Um, you know, with that cover too, I, I really, I really like how you, how you said was the, the cover on the novel there. I, I love it when art has multiple meanings like that. Um, as to whether or not Rob Zombie read the no- novel, I can only speculate, but I can, I can tell from going over his Halloween that he does, or at least he did do a lot of research for Halloween, uh, from mental disorders to serial killers and seeing that white horse in Rob Zombie 2 clearly speaks volumes towards him having read the novel, or at least research silent. Um, as a quick trivia note, uh, we will switch gears to talk about the actors. Um, Carpenter and Hill only had access to the child actor Will Sandin, uh, the guy who played young Michael Myers, on the last day of shooting. Uh, so producer-writer Deborah Hill volunteered to be Michael's hands in the POV scene. Uh, that's why Michael's nails are, are so well manicured and varnished in the scene. <laughs> I never enough, got that. Uh, Will Sandin went on to become an L.A. police officer and had no interest in pursuing his career as an actor. And, you know, you know, I bet the Will Sandlin might have maybe had a hard time getting roles after that. I mean, who knows? I mean, it I mean, it does kind of remind me of the guy who played uh, or like, like the kid who played uh, Danny Torrance in The Shining, uh, Daniel Lloyd. He only starred in one uh, made-for-TV movie after that, and he said, "You know what? I'm done." Uh, he's actually now an associate professor of biology at Elizabethtown Community Community and Technical College here in Kentucky, just about a couple hours drive from me. So, you know, really small world how all of this kind of, like kind of comes together. But you know, I do. But you know, I do wonder kind of what effect like starring in a horror film like probably has on a child because not everyone is uh, Daniel uh, Harris, who you know I really hope kind of gets to come back uh, because she just had an absolute blast on you know on set. But I've got a feeling we're going to be talking a little bit more about her soon enough. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I have seen several behind-the-scenes or making-of docs about horror movies that have children in them, and from what I can tell, the kids actually have a blast on the set, at least most of the time. As to horror's effect on children, I will say that I started watching horror at eight years old, and while I have a dark and twisted sense of humor, it caused me to be a horror writer myself. <laughs> uh, That's but awesome. But switch gears a bit here and talk about some of the actors in the film Of course, uh, one of the key figures in Halloween franchise is Dr. Sam Loomis himself. Um, Carpenter originally hoped to get Peter Cushing's or Christopher Lee to play Sam Loomis. He was thrilled, actually, when Donald Pleasance accepted the role as he was a big fan. Um, In fact, Carpenter was naturally intimidated at first when Pleasance came on set. 
especially since Pleasance was the oldest and most experienced person on the set, with an average age of the film and the cast being about 26, with some just out of high school. But back to Donald Pleasance, who did uh, all of his scenes in only five days of shooting. The total duration of his scene uh, was just over his scenes was just over 18 minutes, and he got $25,000 for that. Imagine that, 18 minutes, $25,000. Um, my understanding is that Donald Pleasant was only doing the film because he had alimony to pay, and his daughter, who was in a rock and roll group in England, said that Carpenter's music on Assault on Precinct, Precinct 13 was cool. Other than that, he had no idea why he was in the movie or who his character was. Uh, Pleasant's asked Carpenter a lot of difficult questions about his character, Loomis, and, and even had a scene cut from the script where he was supposed to have a conversation with his wife on the phone. But Pleasance insisted that the character should have no family or past, and he, and he wouldn't do the scene. In addition, according to the crew, uh, Pleasance had consumed two bottles of wine before doing the scene where he and the nurse were talking about Michael in the car. Uh, John Carpenter was understandably concerned that he would be too drunk and incomprehensible, so he had a talk with Pleasance beforehand. But to the crew's amazement, Pleasance pulled it off. Ultimately, through all of that, Pleasance turned out to be a big-hearted and good-humored individual, and he and John actually became friends. Uh, Pleasance would go on to star in a couple other Carpenter films as well. Uh, but, I mean, damn. It, it, you know, knowing that he's drunk and, and watching that scene, you can actually see it in his eyes. <laughs> it's like... It's like, I love this story so much because Donald... Pleasance, who kind of up to that point was kind of, I guess, like mostly famous over here for being uh, a one uh, uh, flow field in the James Bond films, goes to do this film just for the money. I mean, honestly, I wish I was good enough to do something for 18 minutes and make 25 grand. I mean, that's just a testament to how good he is. But, you know, there's also, you know, a lot of stories like that about actors who just kind of need a quick, easy payday and the movie just blows up. Um, and, and, and I do know that in the behind the scenes, uh, like, uh, like you know the dvd like uh like documentary interviews and stuff uh they actually interviewed uh uh donald pleasant for the movie curse of michael myers in which he says he would love to be in 20 plus of the halloween films because he just loved it and you know in that scene with loomis and marion you know, you almost kind of notice, though, that Loomis seems to be maybe a little too relaxed. Like, so maybe that was a, uh, the two bottles of wine kind of talk, <laughs> yeah. like talking there. But of course, it works beautifully because once they went to like Smith's Grove and all hell's just breaking loose, he really did have a right to be nervous. So, you know, it's really just an excellent portrayal of this kind of character acting that he did. Interesting. If I'm hearing you right, Dr. Loomis himself might have drunk a fair amount of wine because he was nervous about the hearing. If that's what you're saying, that, that's actually a decent way to write that in. 
I mean, doesn't Dr. Loomis really kind of seem like the guy that would have a flask in that trench coat? Don't you think? <laughs> you know, kind of keep those nerves in check, <laughs> you know, because, because there's just so much going on. And, you know, it's kind of interesting um, um, when you're kind of like you dive into that novel because it actually tells you about why this hearing was actually taking place when like when it did, because originally after Michael killed his sister, Judith, the judge at the time didn't want to sentence um, Michael at all. Like they actually tried to pin the murder uh, on the boyfriend, Danny, because, you know, they found the semen and, and, you know, all of that kind of after that kind of disappointing sex scene there. Uh, (laughs) But, but, you know, the Michael Myers case was actually originally set to be reviewed no less than twice a year. And, and upon the recommendation of Dr. Loomis, Michael could actually be released back to the custody of his parents. Um, However, though, it was law that at the age of 21, a criminally insane minor would be brought back before um, a judge for a criminal proceeding. So if Michael was still at Smith's Gross 15 years hence, he shall be brought back before the courts on the day of his 21st birthday, where he was actually going to be tried for the murder of Judith Myers. Man, I, I really love how much insight the book offers on the film. It, it really fills in all the little details that flesh out the story. Not to mention, and to your previous point, I can totally see Loomis drinking on such a day. Um, if I was the psychiatrist of the shape, I might be. Drink- I might uh, take up drinking to calm my nerves on that day too. As I would as, too. Uh, Michael Myers uh, actually supposed to be tried. Um, aside from the shape himself, which we'll get into in a minute, the next biggest star in Halloween franchise is Laurie Strode, uh, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, John Carpenter wanted to hire Jamie Lee Curtis as the ultimate tribute to Alfred Hitchcock because of her mother, Janet Leigh, uh, had legendary status with her role in Psycho from 1960. Deborah Hill also acknowledged that Leigh's status as a horror icon and wanted her to get uh, wanted to get her daughter on board. Uh, during the same time uh, period, Universal Studios producer and director Richard Franklin uh, were trying to get Curtis on board uh, for the new production of Psycho 2, which did not release until 1983. And obviously, Jamie Lee Curtis isn't in it. In addition, she was on hiatus from 1977's show Operation Petticoat uh, when she did Halloween. Uh, but Halloween ended up being Jamie Lee Curtis' first feature film, and she got paid 8000 for her work, which is pretty decent, I think, uh, for a first film. And eight grand was a lot more in 1978, let me tell you. Uh, Jamie, uh, Jamie didn't actually see herself as the repressed version of the group and honestly thought uh, she was a better fit for the smart aleck of the group, so I'm guessing uh, she thought Annie. Um, so she was actually surprised by being chosen to play Lori. Uh, who was named after John Carpenter's first girlfriend, by the way. Uh, Considering that I don't think it's a coincidence that Jamie Lee Curtis was very disappointed by her own performance in Halloween 78. In fact, she was certain uh, she would be fired after her very first day. Uh, When John Carpenter called her that night, uh, she was certain that that would be the end of her film career. But John called her to congratulate her on a job well done and tell her how happy he was with how things worked out. 
Jamie Lee Curtis went on to play Laurie Strode in the film spanning six decades from the 70s to the 2020s. Halloween in 1978, Halloween 2 in 1981, Halloween H20 in 1988, Halloween Resurrection in 2002, and Halloween 2018 and Halloween Kills in 21, uh, 2021. Oh, wow. You know, I never really thought about that, but yeah, that's six decades. Yeah. Now, now, you know, when I was doing the research for this film, like, like you know, I noticed that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis didn't exactly struggle to get work after uh, the film in 1978, but she was certainly kind of topcast in a certain, like, a certain kind of character role. Because several of her other movies, she essentially played the same character. You know, I've heard it said that maybe Carpenter uh, helped Curtis find some other roles to kind of break out of the, um, to kind of break out of that kind of stereotypic uh, uh, genre-esque kind of thing she'd be kind of like top cast in, in, into. But, you know, I couldn't really verify that. Do you know anything about that, Mike? Um, I don't. And uh, the only thing I can tell that Carpenter helped her get a role for uh, that was not a horror film uh, was still a thriller out of Australia in 1981 called Road Games. And I'm only assuming Carpenter was involved because Rose Game was directed by Carpenter's friend Richard Franklin. Um, film hmm. film credit, uh, critic Roger Ebert, who gave negative reviews to all three of Curtis's 1980s films, uh, said that Curtis is to the current horror film glut what Christopher Lee was to the last one and Boris Karloff was to the 1930s. Uh, Curtis uh, really was stuck in that genre until 1983 when she got a supporting role on Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. Uh, that hmm. one helped, but I think the film that really broke her out of the mold was A Fish Called Wanda in 1988. Uh, when that became a cult classic, people were finally able to see her in a different light. Oh, wow. And, you know, that's cool that 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 I mean, she was able to get that role on uh, trading places, and and you know that really kind of helped her kind of break out of that mold. And then and and I mean, then you know you got like these kind of big name um, folks at that time, like you know Eddie Murphy, Dan, like Dan. Ackroyd and these other people that kind of really helped this kind of young girl kind like kind of get out of this mold. Um, it's just really kind of a neat thing to me. So, so, you know, I'm thinking that this kind of thing that I read or heard way back, uh, back when that she kind of struggled kind of getting uh, jobs after that doesn't really seem to be the case. No, I think she did pretty well for herself. Um, look, but uh, if, if, if I can change subjects once again, um, yeah, I have to comment on Laurie's father in the film, played by Peter Griffin, Peter Griffith, uh, the father of the famous Melanie Griffith. Um, you only hear uh, hear him one time at the beginning of the film, and we never see him again. He doesn't even come to the hospital to see her after she was attacked in Halloween Two. Uh, he's just gone. You know, when you see Halloween 2, when Laurie's kind of, you know, at the hospital and they're kind of waiting for the doctor to get in and and the nurse says, 
you know, I think you've drunk. You know, I can almost kind of imagine her dad kind of being passed out drunk somewhere. But, but you know, if but but I mean, if we're just thinking about like this one film, you know, I think it really gave us some of the fodder for our kind of cultural attitude of where are the parents? Like, like you know, when kids kind of get into some kind of situation, and this kind of led to this idea of like uh, uh, the um, the um, helicopter parents and some of the current issues that I think we have now. And you know, I don't mean this in some like big earth-shattering way, but you know, shortly after the Halloween movie in '78 came out, and then you know, you had the next one like like 81 and you know, then you kind of get this whole kind of satanic panic. And then after that, you, you kind of had the kind of heavy metal music panic, you know, and then you got like parents trying to get teachers fired for books, you know, and things like that. So maybe this was kind of the start of that. <laughs> things went crazy in the latter 70s and, and into the 80s with all of that Satan stuff. I mean, don't forget about us evil D&D players summoning demons to our games before we play. Sacrificing oh. virgins on our altars. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, we're definitely going to have to do just like an entire season of this show just doing the Stranger Things show because especially that season four really kind of dives into that you know dnd satanic panic stuff and it just blows my mind but you know here but you know here again i kind of begin to digress <laughs> i could actually do a stranger things threat for sure that, that's a really fun series and i love it even more since i started playing demon dnd oh, right we are a bit off topic here um so let's let's talk about nick castle for a second uh, the man who played the shape. You know, he is known for how creepy he made Michael Myers uh, with just how he moved. Uh, but there's a funny thing about that, actually. <laughs> John Carpenter had very little input for Nick Castle as far as to how he should play Michael. Nick Nick Castle would be like, so what's his motivation here? And John would be just say, just to walk from one stage marker to the next one. Or sometimes, just walk, man. <laughs> one bit of direction uh, that was given that uh, was Michael's uh, uh, when Michael stuck Linda's boyfriend Bob to the wall uh, Carpenter had uh, Nick tilt his head to the side as if he was observing the corpse <laughs> you know man I love that like just telling Nick Castle just walk man and, and you know honestly I think that's what made the shape even more terrifying just you know he's just doing this slow kind of ambling kind of walk and then he's got this blank pale emotionless face just really a creepy thing uh, it was definitely a combo of the mask and castle's walk uh, but i can't put my finger on what it was about castle's movements i want to say that they were calm and yet determined um what do you think jane what is it about castle's performance Man, those movements were just perfect. And yes, you know, I really think they were purpose, purposeful and very methodical. You know, it's like Michael had this singular focus. And it's actually kind of mentioned in the novelization for Halloween Kills. It's basically just kind of this pursuit of meat. 
Okay, so once life is extinguished, it isn't good anymore for the shape. So, and it still hungers. And it's, you know, even that way in the 78 book as well. It's like Michael's is possessed. And as we've kind of been able to gather, and it's because of what um, 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 the uh, Enda did to Deidre and her betrothed in the story earlier, I think. So I think the spirit still kind of hungers through out, out of the film, and that kind of plays a part of the movements. Hmm. So that's interesting. So, so he has a need, a, a hunger to kill in the book. Uh, that, yeah. I, that I have to say that makes sense uh, for the most part. But, but Michael does like to play with his bodies. Uh, so I, that that part, you know what I mean? Like he sets them up and stuff, uh, especially in 2018 and like Halloween Kills. There's definitely some playing around with the corpses going on there. So. I mean, uh, yeah. I say his fascination must last at least a little longer than than as soon as they're dead. Uh, it's like, it's like, it's like I've almost kind of thought of it in a way as like a form of artistic expression too. When kind of thinking about that, that that you know, we can definitely kind of talk about in the other films, especially with um, um, eighteen and kills. So we'll kind of get there. Right. Right. Um. So, if I may switch uh, to a different topic, uh, here's a bit of a random trivia about PJ Souls, who played Linda in the film. Uh, <laughs> apparently, she went to the the screening of Halloween after it was released and sat in the fourth row of the of a regular audience with her boyfriend uh, Dennis Quaid. Uh, she was very amused when, uh, during her nude scene, when she, she says, "See anything you like," and a man from the row. Uh, right in front of her, shouted out, "Hell yes, I do!" <laughs> Obviously unaware that she was sitting right behind him. <laughs> uh, Dennis Quaid asked her if she, she wanted him to confront the man, but she declined, being entirely too amused by the situation. Man, I love that. I guess she got that guy's ghost, even though she didn't get Bob's. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bad jokes aside, you know. Um, and, you know, one thing I think that we'll kind of touch on when we get to uh, Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers, is just how culturally there was this big shift between 78 and 88, especially when it comes to nudity in films. Like, you know, I know there's a lot of panic in the 70s over, like, snuff films and you know there's still a lot of openness about kind of nudity and sexuality and you know you can really see that in that scene with linda and then you know you kind of juxtapose that with 88 with uh uh brady and sheriff meeker's daughter which you know we'll kind of touch on that later but but you know i think that's just a really you know amusing story i mean you know, maybe you can call that kind of like a gentlemanly thing, I guess, that Quaid offer, I suppose. But come on, man. It's a movie. Calm down. She was acting. <laughs> yeah, I can't actually imagine a respectable woman wanting her her boyfriend to do that over a comment about a movie. I mean, yes, it was her on screen. But the guy wasn't saying it, saying that to her. I mean, that would have been rude. He was just talking to the screen. <laughs> um, so... 
if I could switch gears here for a minute, I have I have a question for you, James. Prior to the movie, uh, a book was written by Curtis Richards and reveals more of the story behind Michael Myers' rage, thoughts, and motives. Uh, do you know anything about that rare book specifically? Well, uh, the overall tone of this book uh, is similar to the movie, but it almost seems um, um, a little darker, actually. Get, wow. You know, like just a few little things to point out like Laurie is just like a complete basket case uh, in terms of just being like incredibly spooked and scared in the book itself like like you know in the movie when she leaves home and she goes to drop off the key um, at the Myers house and runs into like Tommy Doyle like like in the movie, she's like, oh, this is no big deal. Like, it's all just like a superstition kind of thing. But in the book, she's actually like really kind of spooked by it and then realizes that Tommy's about the same age as Michael was when Michael killed Judith and was actually kind of talking to him about what evil is and then and and then you know after she kind of drops off the the key she kind of hurries out and she's kind of walking to school and she kind of turns her head because she feels like someone's watching her and she looks up in um like in the house and sees a shape kind of looking back at her from the upstairs window and you know there's just this like she's just a lot more spooked kind of um uh, like kind of throughout the book like like you know she even talks to her mom about stuff and and there's just a lot of things she just seems to be a little more on edge throughout the entire book itself i mean <laughs> i i maybe it's just me but tommy seems a little young to be discussing the ups and downs of evil <laughs> yeah like yeah like really does like you know, there's a uh, there's a part in the book in which she comes home from school and she's actually talking with her mother, which we actually never see in the movie. And so, like, Laurie's kind of talking uh, with her mom about what evil is. And apparently, like, the local pastor kind of talked about how, like, um, uh, Halloween is a time that um, we're supposed to kind of like, you know, we've made it to kind of be this kind of corporate thing, but really it's supposed to be more of like a remembrance of like how evil kind of walks the earth and stuff. And Laurie kind of gets a, um, a glimpse of that kind of as the, like the rest of the book and the movie itself kind of unfold. So it's just like a different take on it and really goes a little deeper in, into that certainly seems like it i mean the the novel the novel seems to really step up the story of the film and it and it really bolsters the layers in it um but speaking of layers and looking through windows um i have to talk about the scene where Lori is in class and uh and, and her and her teacher are talking about fate as Lori looks out the window and sees the shape just staring at her 
Uh, considering that Carpenter intended the shape to be pure evil, not even human, I think the dialogue in this scene is really telling about the nature of the shape as fate himself. Laurie explains that Samuels, one of the writers in her teacher's discussion, wrote that fate was like a natural element, like earth, air, fire, and water. This paints an interesting picture as Samuels, a.k.a. the shape, personified fate. We don't look at nature as good or evil, even though it seems to do both good and bad things, bringing both blessings and terrible disasters. Nature just is. The shape yeah. is supposed to be pure evil, so there is clearly some morality attached to his actions. And I think that anybody watching the film would, would say that what the shape does is evil. But as this scene, in my opinion, is supposed to be telling of who or what the shape is, I wonder if, as it pertains to the shape, Carpenter was referring to the shape as death incarnate, as death is not in and of itself good or evil. It's just like nature. Uh, consider the description given. Fate is immovable like a mountain. It stands where man passes away. Fate never changes. You know, I absolutely love like this part of of the movie, like talking about fate. Um, and then like you see that kind of replayed again, especially in H2O when they're kind of like talking about like Frankenstein's monster. But but but, you know, I don't want to get into that movie too much yet because, you know, I'm sure we're going to get to that. So, But, you know, if we kind of dive deeper into this, the novel actually brings out um, a little bit more because when they're talking about fate in class, Laurie kind of starts to muse with herself about fate. And she says, suppose it was my fate to die like Judith Myers. No matter which way I ran, no matter what I tried, that blade would be waiting for me. Gosh, that couldn't be my fate. I'm too young. I'm too, well, too nice. But Judith Myers was young and probably no less than I. It was just her destiny. That's all. It had been determined by God a million years ago. And on October 31st, 1963, Judith Myers would be horribly murdered. But why would God do a thing like that to a nice girl? God wouldn't do anything evil like that, would he? We were taught in Sunday school, dot, dot, dot. That is interesting. Uh, that Lori is actually thinking about the murder of Judith Myers in the book, uh, especially as it pertains to that scene of her in class talking about fate. Honestly, with her thinking about it uh, throughout, the, throughout the day, it adds a whole new level of terror to the whole thing. That's basically having a nightmare come to life. I, I oh, love yeah. that part of the film, too, and, and it is made even cooler by the same uh, type of classroom examination that reflects the characters at the time of the movie. Um, you have to be paying attention to catch this stuff, uh, but there's no such thing as, as an unimportant dialogue in Halloween or, or any other film, for that matter. It's, it's all meant to reflect something. Exactly. Well, well, you know, this part may not exactly be important to the overall plot of the film. It just adds that extra layer or it's that kind of cherry on top when you kind of catch it and you see the uh, rest of the film and kind of see how it all like plays out. And, you know, and, you know, speaking of that scene, uh, you know, like, like kind of been prepped for this podcast i kind of went back through and rewatched uh the 1978 film again and 
And this was the first time that I realized Michael is actually standing behind the stolen car. And you can just actually just make out the mask kind of peeking over the top of the car. I mean, I've easily seen this movie a hundred times. So I think the uh, the bigger TV and the more crisp uh, picture I got really helped me kind of make out that extra detail. Oh, it really does add another layer of fear that, that serves to elevate the shape to a more than human status. Um, keep in mind that nowadays we expect the villain to be hard to kill or, or even completely unstoppable. When the bad guy gets up, after what should have killed anyone else, we don't bat an eye on that. We, we, we expect that the that, that one final scare. Uh, in fact, Scream makes fun of this trope on more than one occasion. Uh, but the whole supernatural aspect of a killer had not been done outside of the universal monsters. In 1978, when the shape gets up or comes back after Laurie stabs him in the neck with a knitting needle and in the eye with a coat hanger, it was terrifying. I believe you said in one of our talks that Laurie stabbed him in the groin in the novel. Uh, mm-hmm. Suddenly, a stalker killer, a, a scary enough concept on his own, now has a supernatural element to it. And I can't help but think that that think of that scene when uh, Laurie in school earlier, where the shape is at least in theory described as death itself, the very personification of fate. And fate is immovable like a mountain, and it stands where men pass away. You cannot kill death, as Dr. Samuel Lewis found out after he shot the shape six times. Basically emptied a Smith & Wesson Model 15 Combat Masterpiece 38 revolver of bullets, and he fell backwards two stories onto the lawn. It should be noted that in Halloween 2, Loomis actually pulls the trigger one last time to the point where the gun is totally out of bullets. Anyway, all of that to say, I think that when this movie came out, uh, should be considered when, when being watched for the first time as a viewer. Also, if you're a first-time viewer of the 78 Classic, you should know that Halloween is credited uh, as one of the fundamental films that define the slasher genre, and its appearance marks the start of the golden age of slashers, which ran from 1978 to 1984 and covers well over 100 movies. So Halloween was bringing, up, bringing something new. Uh, these aren't the same old slasher tropes. This is the film that started those tropes. And, and you know, honestly, I, I really believe that that the original is the best. So, so you know, I know that John Carpenter wasn't really in this movie to create these slasher movie tropes, tropes and go on to create this kind of wildly successful franchise. But, I mean, he ultimately kind of created this. And, you know, Wes Craven and others kind of borrowed that kind of supernatural element. And it's really just fantastic. I think, I think had he set out to do those things, it would have come across as less genuine. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of Scream and slasher tropes, <laughs> Randy, my favorite character in the Scream franchise, has a few rules about how one survives a horror movie based on the tropes of the genre. The very first one on that list is you can never have sex. And this trope was started with Halloween and taken to extremes with other franchises like Friday the 13th. But the truth is that John Carpenter and Deborah Hill have stated many times over the years that they did not consciously set out to depict virginity as a way of defeating a rampaging killer. (laughs) The reason that they they all die is actually because they're all so preoccupied with getting laid that they don't notice that there's a killer at large. Contrast this with Laurie Strode, who spends a lot of her time alone and is therefore more alert. (laughs) You know... 
you know, that's just kind of a funny thing to me. And, and you know, and, you know, even if you take on uh, uh, low rent Michael, the Jason Foreys of Friday the 13th, kidding, kidding. If you're a big like Friday the 13th fan, like I get it. Like he's really cool. But, 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 you know, in that first film, uh, Jason's mom said that, um, said that um, um, the counselors uh, of the camp was just so consumed with, quote, making love that they didn't see that her son was drowning. So that kind of trope started very, very early on. So and not so. So with the Halloween 78 film, Judith was just consumed by this lackluster performance of Danny and Bob and Linda had no idea, you know, sex, beer, cigarettes and all of that. And then you go to Halloween two with the uh, scene in the therapy room with the pool and like, you know, the girl getting her face kind of scalded off, you know, it's, it's kind of funny to think about, but you know, those kind of scenes really didn't help with that kind of trope. <laughs> <laughs> no, it did not. And, and speaking of which, uh, on the subject of, of both the, the destroying of the face and, 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 uh, uh Jason Voorhees, <laughs> I have to say that I prefer Jason freezing the chick's face, uh, and smashing it on the counter and Jason X to Michael's boiling that chick's face. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, that is good. <laughs> And and speaking of Judy's boyfriend's lackluster performance, uh, Judith Myers and her boyfriend uh, managed to go upstairs, get undressed, turn out the light, have sex, and her boyfriend gets dressed and is on the way down the stairs in one minute and twenty six seconds. Keep in mind that there that, that there was traveling time uh, going up the stairs and getting dressed and undressed during that minute and twenty six seconds. So the sex was even shorter than that. <laughs> for a genre that came to be known for sex scenes and nudity, that might be the saddest performance of any man on record, except maybe Bob's fifteen second performance with Linda later on. You know, you kind of have to think like that's that guy's first time, right? You know, that kind of premature issue that boys can have their first time. Well, it certainly had to be something like that. I mean, those were some pretty pathetic performances that, that I really think only a newbie would do. <laughs> you know what, though? But, but, you know, but, you know, in the book, uh, like, uh, like they had been together for a while and had, quote, gone all the way in the car, but wanted a more civilized location to be able to do it. So maybe, you know, you just had a little more room to observe and a little more room to move around. And that's what kind of led to the uh, premature issues that he had. <laughs> Well, that, that actually makes a lot more sense, and it, and it does redeem poor Dammy, Danny a little bit, but it's still a pretty pathetic effort on Danny's part. <laughs> yeah. But, but we've talked a lot about the good things in the film. Now I would like to switch lanes and talk about some things that just didn't make sense to me. Uh, the first is that Michael killed his sister when he was six years old in 1963. In 1978, he came back to Haddonfield 15 years later, and he was 21 years old. He steals Marion Chambers' car and drives to Haddonfield. 
But where did the shape acquire the skills and knowledge to drive a car? I mean, even who I assume is the director at Smith's Grove says to Loomis that he cannot drive. I don't personally know any six-year-old kids that can drive. I mean, my dad used to put me on his lap and let me steer while he worked the pedals out at the airport, but that's not driving. The only explanation the movie gives is when Loomis suggests that perhaps someone at Smith's Grove Sanitarium gave him lessons. Consider this, though. Smith's Grove is a sanitarium. A sanitarium is a place for those who are convalescing or dealing with chronic illness. In other words, the people there aren't ever expected to leave again. Why would someone teach the shape, uh, which he becomes after he kills Judith, he was no longer Michael Myers, how to drive or, or, or learn any skills to prepare them for life outside the hospital if they're never going to be able to use those skills and likely cannot safely leave the establishment. I can't, I can't buy that some rando at the sanitarium chose to teach him how to drive, follow and stack people in a car. I mean, <laughs> what do you think about the shape knowing how to drive, James? Mike, I mean, I swear, if some rando in the sanitarium there taught Michael Drive. I really hope it's uh, Danny Trejo's character in Rob's zombie film because he was awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, film. you got my vote there, my friend. <laughs> you know, but honestly, I think that the shape or the boogeyman is a totally kind of different character than Michael Myers. You know, as as you know, Aaron kind of says in the 18th film, I believe in Michael Myers, deranged serial killer, but Boogeyman, no. You, you know, I think they might have um, like been a small setup for what ultimately became the Thorn aspect kind of in the 1978 movie with him kind of being able to drive and Michael's kind of the, you know, the god of the cult and the curse of Michael Myers, you know, it's almost like he's been taken over by that supernatural entity kind of keeps him alive and lets him drive and kind of do all that stuff. And, you know, like in the novel, when Michael's at Smith's Grove, like Loomis says that Michael basically has his little empire there. Everyone's afraid of him because all of this kind of weird stuff kind of happens around him. Like, you know, a nurse falls and breaks her pelvis because she kind of had an argument with Michael and then people get hurt or sick and they can't really prove that Michael's doing it, but it's like, like everyone's kind of afraid of him. So literally anyone on staff would do anything that Michael Myers uh, would request. Huh. I can certainly accept that, uh, that some outside entity is giving him knowledge or abilities he might not otherwise have. Um, I mean, that makes more sense than Loomis's explanation. Um, yeah. The second thing I have personally never come across is a Halloween mask in a hardware store. I mean, a Halloween mask feels out of place in that store. Uh, maybe a small town hardware store back in the 70s might have carried them. Uh, but I've been to many small towns and big cities, and none of their hardware stores carry anything but hardware and maybe a key-making side business. Um, have you come across anything that would make you think that a Halloween mask could be found at a hardware store? Well, you know, you know, I was raised in a very small town. Like, we had more cows than people. And we had this kind of, like, hardware store called Western Building Supply. And one year they actually like 
had a few like Halloween items, like masks and stuff when, you know, when I was a kid, because like the closest store to get anything like that was like 20, 30 bottles away. So if you want to get something a little more affordable or something more like that, you actually had to drive to do that. So I do remember like they tried like a few items, but you know, they were so marked up that no one would buy them. So they'd actually drive the 30 miles back. Now these days, uh, we like, we had this kind of chain store called rural King, which is like part hardware store, part Walmart. Almost. It's like, you can get tools and lumber and thing and, and, you know, you can get clothes and, uh, chickens and freshly popped popcorn and I'm, I'm betting you can probably get some masks and stuff there. So I could really kind of maybe see them having that now. All right, then I stand corrected. I, I guess they do have those. Um, you know, a scene I liked in the film was when Laurie Strode and Annie Brackett are driving in the 1977 Chevrolet Monte Carlo smoking pot. They're listening to the song Don't Fear the Reefer by Blue Ulster Colt, which is ironic as Michael Myers is following them in another car. Um, I liked that Rob Zombie used this reference in his Halloween film in 2007. Of course, he does it during a different scene with Linda and her boyfriend, but I like the nod nonetheless. Also, as a quick side note while I'm on the topic, I liked Rob Zombie's 2000 remake, but while I admit that it defies Carpenter's original vision, which was that the audience should at no point relate to him. And Zombie clearly went the opposite way with his version. Um, although Zombie clearly has a love for the original film, uh, the audio of the bullies telling Tommy, he's going to get you, the buddy, boogeyman is coming, was actually used as a voiceover on Rob, uh, White Zombie's cover of I'm Your Boogeyman, sung by Rob Zombie. You know, I didn't know that. And and I think that's really a, a, you know, a neat choice for... Uh, for that kind of nod in zombies version too. And, and, you know, I really kind of like, you know, I really like that, uh, uh, idea of playing, uh, don't fear the Reaper in the 1978 film. And, but, you know, nowadays, the thing I really can't help but think of with that song is every time I hear that song, I cannot help but think of the SNL sketch, I've got a fever and the only prescription is more cowbell. So, so I mean, was this song like really popular in the seventies? <laughs> that was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, actually and one of SNL's best in my opinion. Uh, but, but to answer your question about the popularity of don't fear the reaper uh, in the late 1970s, don't fear the reaper is blue oyster cults highest chart success reaching number seven in the cash box and number 12 on the billboard hat 100 in uh, late 1976. So I would say, yes, it was a popular song in the seventies and especially in 78, just two years after its release, man, how on earth did they afford that with the kind of budgetary constraints they had? I don't have any idea, but it, it could not have been cheap. Um, so be. here's the part. It's actually my favorite part of the whole show. <laughs> I know the show is called Countless Corpses Podcast, but I'm here to tell you we definitely intend on counting the corpses on this show. <laughs> yeah. Halloween 78 
there were a total of seven deaths. The very first death was, of course, Judith Myers, who was stabbed nine times by six-year-old Michael Myers in a clown Halloween costume. The second death was the mechanic who was beaten to death off camera. The third death uh, was an unarmored female dog that was slammed against the wall and then eaten off screen in the, uh, in, off screen in the Myers house. As a side note, in the flashback scenes of Halloween Kills, this dog is actually seen for the first time. Uh, mm-hmm. The fourth death was another dog named Lester, uh, the German shepherd that belongs to Lindsay Wallace uh, that was uh, strangled to death in a kind of off-camera uh, as we only see the bottom half of the dog in the shape. Uh, the fifth death was Annie Brackett, who was strangled in her car before having her throat slit by the shape. The sixth corpse on our list is Linda's boyfriend, Bob Sims, who was briefly strangled before being lifted up and pinned to the wall of a kitchen knife by the shape, who just stands there and watches his hang there for a minute. The seventh and final death in Halloween 78 was, of course, Linda Vanderklaat. Uh, she was strangled to death with uh, a telephone cord. Uh, so you, you, there you have it, folks. Um, five humans, uh, two dogs were killed in the original Halloween classic. But as Halloween 2 from 1981 takes place on that exact same night, one could technically add another 10 corpses from Halloween 2 to the kills of that fateful night in 1978, making the total 17. But again, that is a technicality, and we didn't discuss Halloween 2 in this episode, so our official count will just be seven bodies for this one. And, you know, we could also, like, you know, if you wanted to kind of bring in the novelization part of it, too, you could have between, like, one and three extra deaths. Um, You would have uh, Deidre and her betrothed, which was uh, killed in the prologue in... uh, uh, at the Festival of Samhain. And also, if we and if we go to what Michael did, he actually killed one guard at uh, Smith's Grove uh, by basically trying to rip his head off. So, you know, I, so, I mean, I guess also uh, depends on which timeline you take because there's no other horror franchise that kind of has the reboot soft reboots timelines like, you know, this one does. So, so, you know, if our next chat covers Halloween 18 and kills, which, you know, I, I mean, I know both of us kind of think of that as one movie, then, you know, we have seven kills in 78. So Michael does qualify as a drained serial killer so you know we're also going to have to keep track of all of his kills according to the timeline i'm totally all right with adding those three extra kills from the novel even if they are on the technicality level so technically if you add in the three kills from the novel and the 10 kills from halloween 2 then you're looking at a solid 20 kills for that day and night uh, but but we will need to keep a running tab for the kills in the different timelines. And, and you know, I'm going to love counting those bodies. <laughs> well, yeah. That about wraps up our discussion on the 78 classic Halloween, uh, the film that launched the golden age of slashers and redefined the genre. We'll see you next month when we talk about Halloween 2018 and Halloween Kills.